and welcome back to another episode of the Reconomy Podcast, where we discuss economic issues that impact real estate, housing, and affordability. I'm Odetta Kushi, Deputy Chief Economist at First American, and here with me is Mark Fleming, Chief Economist at First American. Hey, Mark, you know this is our 26th episode, and we're recording it a little bit before Thanksgiving, so I was thinking this may be a good episode to thank our listeners for tuning into the Economy podcast, and what better way to thank them than by answering their questions. Hey, Adetta. Wow, 26 episodes goes by so quickly. And yes, what a great idea. It's Thanksgiving and let's give thanks for those who listen to us because sometimes we make these recordings and we do wonder, is anyone listening? <laughs> is anyone out there? <laughs> <laughs> yep, we're, uh, we're always the ones picking the topics, but this time let's give the microphone to our listeners. So these are gonna be a set of questions that uh, come from not just us, but interesting things for everybody. I should mention we're always open to ideas for our podcast. In fact, sometimes that's the most challenging part of the puzzle is what are we going to talk about this week? So not just on a special Mm -hmm. Thanksgiving episode, feel free at any time to send us your ideas on Twitter and LinkedIn. So without further ado, Adetta, what's the first question? The first question is pretty timely given the holiday. First question is, what's going on with the price of turkey these days? And just to give you a little bit more context, the Department of Agriculture recently released some data that show that the price of a frozen whole body turkey is over 20% higher than last year and about 35% more than the prior three-year average. So what's going on with this uh, meat meatflation? <laughs> okay, meatflation, I see where we're going with all of this. <laughs> And I didn't even know there was such a thing as a frozen whole body turkey, but um, 20%, that's a lot. It all comes back to higher inflation in general. Um, Although meat prices seem to be rising much faster than inflation overall, it's five to 6% right now, compared to 35% over the last three years and 20 in the last year, that's, that's certainly a lot for turkeys. Prices for meats, poultry, fish, eggs, they increased collectively by 11.9% on an annual basis this past, since this past October. And the reason is the same story as we've always been telling, strong demand, of course, especially for turkeys in the two to three weeks leading up to Thanksgiving, labor shortages, specifically in the meat processing facilities themselves because of the potential for COVID outbreaks still, supply chain disruptions like shortages of truckers to get things moved around, and high feed and other input costs. Meatflation is just one of the many forms of inflation consumers are actually experiencing these days. Well, since this episode is airing after Thanksgiving, I hope everyone listening was able to get whatever it is they needed for their Thanksgiving dinner, whether it was the traditional turkey or perhaps its vegetarian cousin, tofurkey. I hear that's a pretty good substitute. (laughs) Oof, uh, I'm all for a veggie burger, but a vegetarian turkey? I I think I'll stick to the real thing. Okay, let me ask the next question, which is right in our real estate wheelhouse. What will the 2022 housing market look like, Odetta? Yes, the question on everyone's mind. Well, let me mention a couple of things that I feel fairly certain about. And Mark, maybe I'll move to you for some of the 2020 unknowns. First, we're pretty sure mortgage rates will rise, um, and that's due to a couple of factors. 
including the Fed taper, continued inflation, and of course, the ongoing economic recovery. That recovery puts upward pressure on the 10-year treasury, and it's likely that mortgage rates will follow suit. Consensus forecasts put rates at about 3.7% by the end of next year, so still historically low, but certainly higher than they are today. And as we know, rising mortgage rates impact affordability. But of course, one of the root causes of rising mortgage rates, as I just mentioned, is an improving economy. And an improving economy often leads to higher wage growth. So those rising household incomes can help to mitigate the impact of rising rates on affordability. All right. So rising mortgage rates, that's forecast number one for 2022. The other thing we're fairly certain about is that house price growth is likely to remain positive. Now, it may moderate some from the double-digit house price growth we've experienced in 2021, but still remain positive. Consensus forecasts indicate that we will have moderating, again, but still high house price growth through 2022. The forecasts indicate the moderation will actually begin at the end of this year and continue through the end of next year. But house price growth is remaining positive because of the severe shortage of homes for sale relative to demand. That is the primary driver of continued house price growth. And that demand is largely coming from, you guessed it, millennials aging into their prime home buying years. So, Rising demand against limited supply and still positive house price growth is what's expected for 2022, which is a little bit more of the same that we experienced in 2021. But is there an unknown factor? Uh, Yes, there is one very big one. Inventory of both existing and new homes for sale, shall we say lack of inventory. The shortage of new home completions and existing homeowners staying put is going to keep inventory in short supply next year. That's not going to change. In fact, that was something we were talking about in 2019. It was even more so in 2020 and it's likely to 2021 and it's likely to remain in 2022. We've been underbuilding to the tune of a few million housing units relative to demand for about a decade now as millennials have aged in and wanted to, you know, not only just get shelter in general, but also home ownership more recently. So building will have to exceed household formation for a number of years to come to reduce that debt that we've accumulated in terms of increasing the size of the housing stock in general. But home builders, hopefully, might be able to solve this in the short run because they have a lot of homes in the backlog right now that they haven't been able to complete, partially finished, missing appliances, windows, those last few things to bring it across the finish line and bring those to market. That might if the supply chains are res- issues are resolved, that might reduce the relief, create some relief, um, but it may not really be enough because new homes generally don't make up a significant share of the total inventory of homes for sale. So when we return to existing homeowners, most of whom were able to refinance into rock bottom rates, three or even less than 3% in the last year or two, this creates an incentive or a limited incentive to sell. It will cost you more each month to borrow the same amount of money when rates go up. That increase in mortgage rates leaves existing homeowners feeling a rate lock-in disincentive effect from selling their homes. So whether the supply shortage gets better or worse, and it would need to get significantly better to really make a difference, that will depend on how rate locked in existing owners feel and if all those pent up new home completions can finally come to market. Next question, please. All right. A great one here. Is house price appreciation correlated with interest rates? Well, we could just look at the Pearson correlation coefficient to answer that one, right? 
Yeah, let me try and explain that without using the Pearson correlation <laughs> coefficient, which, you know, by the way, is negative. Um, yeah. <laughs> fine, fine. We'll go easy on our listeners on their holiday break. Right. So the non-technical answer. First, we have to look back at the long-run decline in the 30-year fixed-rate mortgage. In 1981, at 18%. And so for the last 40 years, that's right, 40 it's been declining. And you know how we love our history lessons here on this podcast. If you hold incomes constant, lowering market rates or mortgage rates relative to the time that you last purchased. So you buy a home in 1981 for 18% and three years later, it's 12%. Well, that means you can refinance and borrow the same amount of money for the less per month, or you could buy more home for the same amount per month. Um, so this historically long run decline in mortgage rates has driven the market for 40 years now of move up buying, housing market turnover, increased mortgage finance, refinancing activity, all of that in part or largely due simply to the fact that in the long run, rates have been declining. Of course, on the flip side, higher rates means home purchasing power, how much one can afford to borrow based on the mortgage rates in their household incomes go down. And that means it will cost more per month to buy your, I'm air quoting here, your same home back from yourself on a monthly basis when you go to a higher rate. Who would do that? That's the rate lock-in effect we were just talking about. But here's the important key. It's not just about rates when it comes to what will, what will happen to prices. Because lower rates do prompt more demand for homes. You can buy more. Your purchasing power has increased. But that's not, oh, that's not alone what will cause prices to rise or fall. If demand increases when there's lots of supply, you don't see a price effect. But when demand increases in the scenario we're in now with limited supply, oh boy, you sure do see a price effect. So in essence, lowering mortgage rates recently, increasing home purchasing power has been one of the main reasons why prices have gone up by so much because, as we've already said, there was a lack of supply. No supply, you increase purchasing power, what else happens? Prices rise. All right, so my question for you, Adetta, and we talked about this a lot in years, years past, but it's still a, an important issue about student loan debt. Will student loan debt prevent millennials from buying homes? You know, I get this question a lot. And really the concern here is that student loan debt prevents millennials from saving for a down payment, which will prohibit their ability to buy a home. So we did some research using the 2019 Survey of Consumer Finances data, which is the, the latest available year for that data. And we found that in fact, between 1992 and 2019, average student debt increased from just over $12,000 to just over $40,000 in inflation adjusted dollars. So that's a lot. But the percentage of income dedicated to student loan debt repayment each month has, in fact, declined for the average young household. So between 2016 and 2019, the average payment to income ratio of a family with a household head between the ages of 25 and 34 declined from just over 7% to about 5.5%, while the median remained nearly unchanged at 4%. So how can that be? You have higher student loan debt, but that payment to income ratio is remaining stable. A couple of reasons. First of all, incomes have increased over that same time frame. Secondly, 
longer repayment terms. For those of you who listen to this podcast, I assume you have some background in in real estate or interest. So think about what happens when you go from a 15-year mortgage to a 30-year mortgage. It allows you to borrow a lot more money for the same monthly payment. And so that's what's happening here. We have longer repayment terms, higher incomes, and by the way, lower interest rates, which actually goes back to Mark's point that he just made about you know the relationship. Lower interest rates allows you, again, to borrow more money. So student loan debt has increased over time, but student loan buying power there were some air quotes there, has increased sufficiently to keep the monthly payment burden from increasing. So this is one of the reasons why student loan debt is more likely to delay rather than prevent homeownership. And we're seeing exactly that with this generation. Millennials are buying homes, but later in life compared to their generational predecessors. So that was a really good question. All right, let's do one more. Mark, the final question is actually related to commercial real estate. With more work from home options, what does the future of office space look like? <laughs> that might be the existential question in commercial yes. <laughs> real estate circles at the moment. What happens to offices? I will point out that for the last year or so, we have been doing this podcast from our home offices, but today we happen to be where, Odetta? We are in the office today, right next door to each other. In the office, exactly. So sort of an anecdotal point of what we're about to talk about. It's true that increased working from home has untethered us from the urban core. We don't necessarily have to live as close to that urban office as we did before because we don't have to do that commute every time. But that's clearly also being reflected in prices. According to the RCA commercial property price indices that we watch, car-dependent suburban office properties. So think about that. This is sort of the outer suburbs, if you will. Posted an 18.7% annual growth rate in the third quarter of this year. That's impressive. Meanwhile, office prices in the core business district in the center of the cities, where all the office high-rises are, remain flat, barely budged, 0.3%, after actually declining for on an annual basis for the three consecutive quarters prior. But it's not just about office space. It's really more generally about where people work because where people shop or eat during the work week shifts along with where you're working. So you move your office to your home and you move your coffee purchase from the inner core also to the home. Yeah, I mean, we're actually just discussing that we're going to lunch downtown and we don't really know what's open anymore because we haven't been eating lunch near the office for a year. That's right. But we have been eating lunch near the places near our homes. So it's a shift. Exactly. It's a shift, not in the total amount of demand we suspect, but where that demand is coming from. We also see in the retail property prices, highly walkable central business district prices declined on an annual basis while car-dependent suburban retail property prices increased 15.2% year-over-year in the third quarter. There's probably going to be the same overall amount of demand for office and retail space but the, in the long run, but what the difference is where that space will be demanded, and it's much less likely to be so concentrated in the urban core. And then in addition, remember, all those millennials that we talk about moving and buying homes, They were already moving to the suburbs even prior to the pandemic. But now that we can work from home and that's being accelerated due to the untethering, I think there's going to be a big shift in where that commercial real estate demand occurs. So, Odetta, are you going to move to the suburbs anytime soon like the rest of your millennial colleagues? 
you know, it's still the city for me for now. There are still plenty of millennials living in the urban core. And then, of course, we have Gen Z, a smaller generation, but closely behind them. They're likely to gravitate towards the city as well at first. Cities still offer, you know, we have walkability, we still have amenities, and, of course, the office space for those hybrid work arrangements. Um, Not to mention, there's actually a cohort of younger households that may want to move out to the suburbs, but can't really find anything to buy right now. I just want to make one point before we finish up, because I know that's where we're headed. I am thankful for one other thing, and that is, Odetta, the opportunity to record these podcasts with you. Always a highlight of my work week. Thank you, Odetta. Thank you, Mark. It is a pleasure doing this podcast with you. And we just, we have so much fun. Um, And we really hope that our listeners can hear us having fun and are enjoying tuning in. And that's a great place to end today's episode. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Reconomy Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. You can also sign up for our blog at firstam.com slash economics. If you can't wait for the next episode, please follow us on Twitter. It's at Odetakushi for me and at mplumbingecon for Mark. Don't forget to ask us your questions and what you want to hear. Until next time. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Reconomy podcast from First American. For even more economic content, visit firstam.com economics. This episode is copyright 2021 by First American Financial Corporation. All rights reserved. For more information, visit us at firstam.com.